So we're going to be reading from Psalm 146, which you can find in your bulletin, Bible, Bible app. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the, ca the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord gives, lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's bound to happen someday, one day. You know, in our uh, tradition, it's called the Reformed tradition, for those who don't know what the tradition of Grace Valley Church is. Uh, we, we highlight the, the message. We, we, we look forward to the message. It's kind of central to our worship, where God speaks to us. But I got to tell you, man, I'm, uh, I'm just reeling from the last 10 minutes or so of singing that we've done and reflecting on the gospel in our time of confession. The music was just so powerful. I almost want to, like, preach to you an extemporaneous sermon on the songs we sang. Um, so what I'm saying is, is I, I believe the Holy Spirit, he's, he's prompting me some way, somehow, things might go a little sideways as we, as we listen to God this morning. Um, because I'm, I'm just, these words, our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost, but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. I just want to ask you, do you believe that? He rose from the dead with your freedom in hand. Some, look, I've had a week, and some of you have had a week, and you have had, you have done things, you, you have lived with stuff that, that has weighed you down massively. It's funny, when you talk to non-Christians, it seems like the hardest thing to convince them of is that they're a sinner. But when you talk to Christians, it's almost like the hardest thing to convince them of is that they're forgiven. He rose with your freedom in his hand. You are beating the tar out of yourself because you suck. And he is standing there saying, I, I died and I rose so that you can stop this. 
If you would look to me and look at my cross and cling to my son and his shed blood for your sin, you don't have to live with the guilt and the weight of that anymore. And I just, I just pre-sermon, sermon, I just want to apply to those of you who desperately need to experience God's forgiveness. Just go through these songs again and look at your Savior again and remember that he knew everything about you before you were even a twinkle in your grandfather's eye. And everything that you have done that is weighing you down right now, he knew it long before you did and his son knew it long before you did, and they agreed together that the son would take the punishment you deserved for that on his shoulders, on that cross, because they love you more than you could ever imagine. And if you wonder, could he really love me? Go to that place again. Go to Calvary again. And find your assurance. All right. I guess I didn't integrate it in. I kind of just spouted it off at the beginning, but who knows, it may come up again. Uh, we're looking at Psalm 146. Let me start this way. Um, when Jess and I were in, living in Philadelphia and I was going to seminary, I kid you not, we lived by a train station, a police station, a fire. Talk about noise, okay? And when we first got there, you know, every night you'd wake up in the middle of the night, you'd be like, ah, here it goes again, all these, all these sirens. But what's strange is that after a while, you get used to it. And we would have visitors come and stay the weekend with us because they were all from Ontario, so they lived far away, and they'd stay for the weekend. And, you know, the first night, they'd wake up the next morning, and uh, I, would, I would ask them, or we would ask them, so how'd you sleep? And they'd be like, oh, it was terrible. You know, how do you sleep down here? And we were like, well, we just got used to it. We don't notice it anymore. Because it becomes a regular part of your life, right? And Worship, Sunday worship, is for believers, hopefully, a regular part of their lives. And what can happen over time, as you come, through, come each week and we, we go through worship together and we, we work our way through what's called the order of service or the liturgy, you can kind of go on autopilot and just sort of walk your way through it and not really understand what on earth is going on and what the the point of it all is and what the meaning of it all is. Um, even though worship is critical, we don't think it through. And so it's good occasionally to be reminded about why we're here and what we're doing. If you look on the back of your uh, bulletin somewhere or in your bulletin where it says engage group stuff for engage groups, you'll see a quote in there from a guy uh, named uh, James K.A. Smith, Jamie Smith, uh, people who know him well call him Jamie Smith, and he writes in a, in a really great book, uh, You Are What You Love, he writes this, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes 
and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Now, uh, we've been talking about discipleship and uh, developing pathways of discipleship in, um, in Grace Valley Church that are effective and meaningful. And, and just, you know, discipleship means uh, being an apprentice to Jesus in the way of kingdom living. That's a simple definition of what we mean by discipleship. Apprenticeship in the way of Jesus, uh, apprenticeship, with, with, uh, apprenticeship with Jesus in the way of kingdom living. And um, followers, we are trying to produce here at Grace Valley, followers of Jesus Christ who are clear thinking, deep feeling, humbly serving, who are like Jesus. We're trying to produce followers of Jesus who are like Jesus. That's why we say life in Christ, Christ in life. Well, in worship, in this ritual, everything, that's where it all starts. That's where discipleship starts. That's where God begins his work of retraining our hearts to follow Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, over the next few weeks, we're going to walk our way through the, call, uh, the order of service here at Grace Valley and why we do the different elements of worship the way we do them. And we're starting today with the call to worship at the very beginning. Uh, you can see the heading in the bulletin says, God calls at the beginning of the service. Many churches have a formal call to worship, a short text passage from scripture that invites us to praise God. Why? Why do we start that way? Well, we're going to look at Psalm 146 together, and we're going to look at what we're called to do, why we're called to do it, and how we can do it. Those are the, the three things we're going to discover from this passage. So let's, let's have a look at Psalm 146. First of all, what are we called to do? What is the call to worship about? Well, it says in verses 1 and 2, it says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. The call to worship is to praise the Lord. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, praise the Lord, what you see in English as praise the Lord, is, is all one word in the original language. It's the word hallelujah, right? And the word hallelujah is divided up, is made up of two words. It's, it's made up of the word Hallel and Yah, which is short for Yahweh. We're called to Hallel, praise Yahweh. Now, the word Hallel, it's a very interesting word. Literally, what it means to do is to brag or boast. It's, it's, it means to be proud of something. Even more than that, it actually means to say that something has tremendous value. It is very important. It has, it has weight. It has significance. You could even say it has glory, which the original word for glory in Hebrew literally means weight. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Bible knows our hearts. The Bible knows that part of our nature, in our nature, is a need to boast. 
a need to brag. Think about a, a group of boys. Girls probably do this too, but I mean, my experience is with boys. Young boys, you know, eight, ten years old. They're on the, 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 they're out in the field at recess time or something like that. And the one kid says, yeah, well, you know, I'm the fastest. And the other kid says, yeah, well, I'm the strongest. And then the other kid who didn't think quick enough to say what they're great at, they say, yeah, well, I'm the smartest. And everybody looks at him and goes, well, so who cares? <laughs> like, you're the smartest, so what? But trust me, guys, when you're like 19, 20, 21, being the smartest is the one you want. Nobody cares if you're fast or strong anymore. They only care if you're smart. So you, you do, they, these kids, they do this. And why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this because they're trying to build their confidence, right? They're trying to build themselves up because we know intuitively as human beings that we need confidence to face life because life is hard. The world is a battlefield. And we all know this. In, in ancient times, okay, when, when armies would line up to go to battle, then the leader of the army would kind of go through a ritual boast of sorts to, to kind of get his troops all riled up and ready to go, right? So he'd, you know, he'd say, by this time tomorrow, the rivers will run red with the movies, Gladiator, uh, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Or uh, if you're even older, you maybe remember Braveheart, you know, where Mel Gibson, he's running along the hordes, these Scottish hordes, and, and he's yelling at them with his face all painted blue, and he says, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And they do this because they're going into battle. Well, we all know intuitively that life itself is a battle. It's a struggle. It's a war. Uh, one of my sh shows that I used to watch when I was growing up, I'm dating myself, of course, but whatever, uh, is a show called Cheers. And it was about a bunch of people who hung out in a, in a pub after work. And there was a character named Norm. And this guy would walk into this bar and everybody would say, Norm! And he'd say, afternoon, everybody. And someone would ask him a question, how are you today, Norm, or something like that. And he always had a quip, some kind of funny response. And one of them was, well, when they said, hey, Norm, what's up? And he says, well, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. <laughs> and he was basically saying, look, it's tough out there. It's really hard out there. Life is a fight. And I'm losing, apparently, or I'm targeted. And so we boast, we need to boast in order to, to build this confidence. And the Bible knows that. The Bible doesn't tell you don't boast. The Bible doesn't tell you don't look for confidence. What the Bible says, what the Psalm 146 says is, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Hallelujah. Yahweh. Now why Yahweh, because you see, there's, there's other words for God in the Old Testament. There's El, which is kind of a generic name for God. Yahweh was a very specific name for God. It was a reference to the God who rescued the people of Israel from Egypt. That was the paradigmatic event in their history. Whenever the Jews were reflecting on the faithfulness of God and what God was capable of doing in their lives, they always, always, always went back to the time when they were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them miraculously through the plagues and then through parting the Red Sea and enabling them to cross through it, okay? This was the God who was their savior, you see. 
the God who, when he took them to that mountain, you know, remember Mount Sinai, it was a mountain that God took his people to, and he went into it, he entered into a very special covenant relationship with them. He said, look, I promise to love you and to take care of you and to be your God, and you will be my people. That's the one who they're supposed to be halleling, praising. So when we come to worship and we hear a call to worship, we're being told, look, yes, I know you need to boast in something. You need to find your confidence in something. You need to ground your glory in something. That something must be God. And what's this God like? Look at verse 6. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. It's so remarkable that the psalmist puts together these characteristics of God, this this being who is all-powerful, all-glorious, all-majestic, who who has no challengers to his glory or to his throne or to his rule or anything like that. He is so different from us, and yet, at the same time, he is faithful, it says. He remains faithful forever forever. And then he expands on it in the following verses. How is he faithful forever? Well, he upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He gives sight to the blind. He he lifts those up who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. He watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow. Here's the point. This God, if you have a Bible, you can go to one one psalm later, Psalm 147. It says in verse 4, He, that is God, determines the number of the stars and calls them by name. So if you want to know how powerful is God, how, like, what can God really accomplish? Well, He has apparently not only created the trillions of trillions of trillions of stars that exist in the universe, and by the way, some of you have been south lately, so you're hanging out on a beach. You take every single grain of sand from all the beaches on the earth and all the deserts on the earth, and you put them together and you count every individual grain of sand. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. And he hasn't just made them, but he's named them. He's got a catalog. Oh, there's, oh boy, Alpha Centauri Curia out there. Yeah, I should have thought of some actual star names when I was thinking about this. Oh, how are things going? Zephyr Quinarius? Like he, this is, this is this God, okay? This God who is this high, this glorious, etc. He knows you just as intimately. He knows, Jesus says, the hairs on your head. He knows every thought that you have. He knows every quirk about you. He knows every uh, uh, anxiety uh, producing experience that you're going to have. He knows how you react in difficult situations. He knows what you want to do when you're feeling stressed out. He knows how you feel when you're happy. He knows absolutely everything about you. Now look, what I'm trying to say is, I I don't know how to make an analogy other than to say, imagine if you cared 
deeply and personally about the well-being of every individual ant in that ant colony that lives in the corner of your backyard. Now that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? In fact, most of you are thinking that ant colony, I, yeah, I care about killing the ant colony. I don't care about the well-being of the, the ant colony. But the point is, is you are so much greater a being than the ants in your backyard. It is ridiculous for you to have any kind of concern for how the ants are doing. But the distance between God and us is infinitely, infinitely, sorry, bigger than the distance between us and our ants. And yes, nevertheless, God still cares about you that intimately. Now, when we come into this place or any church that meets for worship and God is reminding us that our hearts need to be reoriented around this person, that's what we're doing. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we do this week in and week out? Well, because we tend to put boasts, we tend to put confidence in other things. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Now, th that term prince, it, it really refers to a person of high rank, a person of nobility, a, an influential person. So, so we would think today uh, of a person who has the means to get things done. So we're talking wealthy people, we're talking influential people, politicians, you know, people who work in bureaucracies, the people who are able to get things done. Many scholars that believe that this is actually a reference to Cyrus. Now, who's Cyrus? Well, after the Babylonian exile, so after the Israelites, uh, finally God got sick of their idolatry and he exiled them into Babylon, um, Persia rose to power, and the king of Persia, Cyrus, defeated the Babylonians, and the Jews asked if they could return to Jerusalem, and he said, yeah, you can return to, the Jer to Jerusalem. This is in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, and one of the things they asked is, is, well, when we get back there, can we rebuild the temple? And he said, sure, go for it. And of course, everybody's like, woohoo, we get to do this. Problem is, is Cyrus dies. And another king rises to the throne, and the enemies of the Jews, who were the Samaritans, and, you know, um, I, I won't get into why they were the enemies of the Jews, that'll take too long, but the Samaritans, they come down, and they convince this new king to stop work on the temple and not allow the Jews to rebuild the temple. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 4. And so these plans that the Jews had now come to nothing because a new king has risen and he doesn't agree with this pro program. And the point of this is, is that ultimately people cannot be trusted. Cyrus had agreed to build this this temple and let them rebuild this temple and it was all great but then he dies and what happens the plans come to nothing as the psalm says the most trustworthy the most reliable the most dependable people in the world will fail us at the end 
ultimately, your spouse whom you love and you would like, you would, you, you would put your life into their hands. You would trust them with that, absolutely everything. Even they will ultimately fail you because we're mortal. They die. I remember when a man's wife died and shortly after her dying, I was talking to this man and he blurted out at one point, if she knew the hell that she'd be putting us through, she never would have done this. And it obviously doesn't make sense, right? How could this woman prevent herself from dying? And it was just an outburst from this man's heart. But what he was expressing was, was this sense of being let down, failed by the person closest to them. You know Johnny Cash? Sure you know Johnny Cash. He did a very haunting remake of a Nine Inch Nails song called Hurt. Many of you probably have heard of it. And he says, in that, in that song, he says these words. He says, what have I become? My only friend. Everyone I love goes away in the end. You can have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. We have a tendency to put our confidence and our trust in things that are temporary that will ultimately disappoint us. Maybe, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll be there for a long time. Maybe they'll uphold us for a long time. Maybe they'll, we can trust them for a long time, but sooner or later, they will let us down. You guys are at work, you are at school, you are at home, wherever you are, you are being bombarded and pressured to put your confidence in princes, in lesser things. I, I, I have a very vivid example of that in my own recent history. You know, we just, Jenny, I even prayed about it. We've talked about how, you know, we're going to be able to buy the, the church office and it's very exciting and it's wonderful. But I can tell you, for three to four months, my life was this constant struggle of putting my trust in princes over something that I thought was good and important. I thought it was good and important that we would buy the church office. I looked at the finances for the, you know, the forecast for the next five years, and I'm like, whoa, we can't go buy it, spending this kind of money for the next five years, or we're going to go broke. We got to do something. Hail Mary, let's see if we can buy the office. And, and what I discovered was, was that, that I was beginning to ask questions. Well, what if the, what if the owner refuses to pay? What if, what if a foundation doesn't want to help? What if I can't find donors to make this happen? And I felt like, like, like this had to happen, that it had to get done. And I started putting my hope and my trust in these individuals, in the owners, in the donors, etc. And it's a terrible place to be because you never have any sense of assurance and certainty because human beings are fickle. Even the good ones. We're fickle. You know what fickle means? We change our mind. Well, yeah, I want to help you out today. But I one of the things we really struggle with is consistent integrity. <laughs> and so I was living with all this anxiety and fear. My poor wife, I, I feel terrible for having having to talk me back from the brink over and over and over again. And just put your trust in God. I'm like, yeah, that's easy for you to say. But she was right. Verse 6 says, he remains faithful forever. Don't, don't go to the forever right away. Notice, he remains faithful. He remains faithful 
forever. When everybody else ultimately cannot do that. Even if they want to, they ultimately cannot do that. He does it. And the word there is the word for commitment. The, the same kind of commitment that uh, spouses make to one another when they're, when they're making their marriage vows, their wedding vows. Till death do us part, right? They're committed to us, to our good, to our flourishing, to our thriving. But God alone says, I can do that forever. We know we don't deserve this. This gets back to what I was talking about before the sermon started. For many of us in here, we have things going on. And we've had to say sorry again. And we start to question God. Not in a bad way, not in a like, this is your fault way, but actually in a, in a, in a kind of a, a human way. We say, well, how, how long is God going to put up with me? I am so tired of disappointing him. He must be getting tired of it too. But when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what you see is that God has been forever the faithful one. Because he, he ultimately broke faith with the only one who deserved his complete faithfulness at all times and in all places because Jesus, when he cried, you know when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that was? That was a cry of faithfulness. There he is hanging on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. And even in his deepest, darkest, most tumultuous, tragic moment in the sense of abandonment, he cries out in faithfulness to God. My God, you are my God. Why have you forsaken me? And he heard nothing. He heard nothing in response. God the Father broke faith with his son. Why? So that he would never, ever, ever, ever break faith with us. This is why we need to come back. Listen, it is, it is the strange, paradoxical nature of being human that we can be given this unbelievable truth that despite everything we've ever done, we are loved beyond our wildest dreams by our Creator and our Redeemer. And that we have to be told that for a lifetime. Over and over and over again. I, this is not a minister's subversive, backdoor, sneaky way of trying to improve your church attendance, okay? This is about your life. How, how do we get this reorientation? When we are called to worship, what, what's got to happen in us for us to be reoriented? What, what even triggers the desire for the reorientation, right? Well, look at verse 5. 
It says, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob. It's interesting. The psalmist says Jacob. He's the God of Jacob. Why not Abraham? Why not the God of Abraham? Why not the God of Isaac? Why not the, the God of David? Why Jacob? Well, when you go back into the book of Genesis and you read about the, the life of Jacob, there's something very interesting about the patriarchs. And, and with Jacob, you have to say, look, there is virtually nowhere in his story where you could say, be like Jacob. Abraham's not perfect, Isaac's not perfect, but there are times, at least in their lives, where you're like, hey, they did the right thing. You don't get that with Jacob. Jacob is not a hero. Jacob is a weasel. He's the deceiver. It, it's interesting, if you read carefully the life of Jacob and the life of Esau, if you're, if you're, if you're just reading it as literature, not trying to understand the theology behind it, you'd be like, Esau's the good guy here. He's the dude I'd want to hang out with. He's fun, and he's also really nice. Like when Jacob comes back after trying to steal, you know, stealing his birthright and everything, many, many years, he comes back, and Esau's like, yeah, man, you know, water under the bridge, guy. Jacob's not likable. Yet Jacob's the one who's chosen. He's the one who's chosen. He's the one that God chose and said, through him, I am going to bless the world and I'm going to bless him. Friends, we are Jacob. If you're here and you have even the least little bit of interest in God at all, that means you are chosen. Because you would have no interest in him if he did not have interest in you first. And you need to see that that is God's faithfulness to you even before you had any inkling and interest in him. In the mystery of his will, which you cannot fathom and you can never plumb the depths of, in the mystery of grace, he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He has been so faithful. He's been faithful to you before you even knew what faithfulness looked like. And when that sinks into you, when that, when that sinks into me, when I see him loving me before I even thought about loving him, when I see he's been faithful to me throughout my life, despite all the times where I have been so faithless to him, that's what begins to reorient your heart. The call to worship. It's the beginning of, of the work of renovation in your heart and in my heart. This is the gymnasium, friends, where God retrains us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us. Thank you for being the one who's initiated this relationship between us and you. If it were not for that, Father, we would be lost. We would be we would be out of here, we would be on our own, and we would be ruining ourselves and the people around us, but you just refuse to let that happen. And so every week you call us again to reorient our hearts around you. Father, may we learn that lesson, may we learn it a little more each week, so that sooner or later, that's what
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.